I'm Sterling Fox, joined on the line from the University of Guelph by Ph.D. student and researcher in rural studies, Brady Reed. Mr. Reed has collaborated on an article with a colleague from the University of Guelph named Lou Helps, uh, entitled How to Ensure Your Charity Donations Truly Help Your Local Community. Brady Reed, good morning and welcome to our show. Good morning. How's it going? It's just fine. A little cool, a little cloudy, a little, well, <laughs> typical Vancouver Saturday morning, Brady, but it's great to have you with us. And, you know, I'm just going to use one line, the opening line from your article to sort of tune people into where you and Lou were going with this. Since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, the charitable sector has provided vital support and services to Canadians through nearly 86,000 registered charities that in 2018 received about $10 billion in donations. As a preamble to your appearance with us this morning a few minutes ago, Brady, I talked about Canadian generosity. We are notoriously generous people, aren't we? We are, yes. And that, I think, is even more so when you look at rural communities and, and rural regions in the country. Uh, in your studies, your focus of study is rural regions, and the uh, you go on. I'm just going to read one more paragraph here. In 2020, however, Charity Intelligence Canada reported a substantial proportion of charitable donations are wasted on large charities that aren't transparent about the impact of each dollar donated. And that's the fork in the road for a lot of people. And Brady, if anything, I think the pandemic has taught us, as we've had a lot of time to think about these things, it, it, it's to make sure that if we do donate to someone, that those that the donation actually has legs, that it's going to go somewhere and actually do something beneficial. Yeah, and I think that the key word there really is that uh, transparency. And when we look at even the word, you know, wasted, um, some people might think, you know, well, is any dollar wasted if you're giving it to charity? But I think it really boils down to that transparency piece. And if you don't see where that money ends up or if you can't, you know, follow that paper trail, then there is a portion of that that might be wasted or might be might go to something that you may not support or not have wanted to give your money to. Um, and so there's that lack of, of visibility of, following the dollars, I guess you could say, um, when you look at these sort of transnational or, or multinational organizations. Um, and we've seen that with, you know, with the WE charity scandal, uh, you yeah. know, the alleged um, conflicts of interest and misused dollars. So, Yeah, well, I'm glad you got right to the WE thing because it, it figures prominently <laughs> in the article you wrote. But, but even before we zoom in on that one, Brady, let's just talk about funding structures because the larger the charity, the more organized the fundraising is. And, mm -hmm. and so how, do, how does that work? Because at the door, uh, somebody knocks on your door, they're wearing an ID badge, they're carrying a, a little package, they give you a brochure, they would like some of your money, uh, and so on. So uh, in terms of breaking the, the donation dollar down, uh, what's the formula for especially some of the big charities? Because the people along people who raise the money get some of it themselves, don't they? Mm -hmm. A commission of sorts. Yes. Yeah, so there is. I mean, I'm not going to you know sit here and pretend like I'm some sort of expert on funding uh, structures, but I can share some that I do know, um, and that really has been exposed by the pandemic. I think is that you're not seeing those traditional forms of knocking on the door, looking for money, um, kind of fundraising efforts. Instead, people that are just Googling, you know, where can I donate money? Or they're seeing an ad on a website, or if they're scrolling through something, they're looking at a, you know, saying give to this. And, and that sometimes is reflected in sort of the, I guess, uh, you know, uh, current issues or global issues, you know, if, if, if it's about the climate crisis or about social injustice, or, you know, when, when there's different movements happening, people are giving to certain things. And so um, the capacity that organizations have to capture those funds uh, comes down really to uh, some of the things like their endowment. Like, do they have enough money in their reserve that they can hire the staff, for example, to do those sort of reaching out and, and um, adjusting to online? And now that, you know, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic is, has really curbed those sort of traditional fundraising efforts and, and in-person events and galas and door-to-door, -door, you know, we're really shifting to this online reality where if you don't have a good online presence, then you're not necessarily going to capture those uh, those dollars, and that um, to get a good online presence uh, costs money, right? So there's that upfront cost that if you if your organization already has um, or is struggling with that capacity piece, then you're unlikely going to be able to adjust uh, quickly and 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 be flexible in that. And I think charities are seeing that, and and even looking at you know as you said, um, we've 
sort of depended on and, and different sectors of the charitable uh, sector. Yeah. But, um, you know, the demand is growing, but that capacity necessarily isn't growing at the same rate that the demand is. So there's, there's some gaps there. What's a typical split, Brady? And again, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not identifying you as any kind of expert <laughs> on charitable structures. But typically, we know, for example, that, uh, uh, that, that, that for example, uh, of a donor dollar for your for eighty cents of your dollar to go to the actual charity or the purpose of the charity minus twenty uh, percent for administration costs and mm-hmm. so on. If you're getting an eighty uh, twenty split. Uh, is that right. typical and is it normal? Uh, I wouldn't use the word typical or normal. And what I would say is that it, it, again, really depends on the work that the organization is doing and that initial capacity or endowment that the organization is working off of. Like, for example, right, right. I know of an organization in PEI uh, on the East Coast that, um, you know, if you donate a dollar, 100% of that dollar goes to a cause that you're donating it for because sure, they have, yeah. you know, a $20 million endowment. So they're all of their operational costs are, are included in that sort of investment they get on their return of that endowed fund. And so they've worked, you know, 30 years to build this endowed fund. And now sure. they're at a place where they can, you know, use that fund to pay for their operational costs and really ensure that every dollar counts when you do donate that. Um, but there are certainly charities that have that sort of 80-20 split or, you know, they'll have on their website, like 80% of your dollar will go to, to helping this. And then it's like, well, where's the other 20% going? And it's, Right. Um, you look at some of the salaries that some of the uh, the, the big wigs have, and, and you kind of have to question these things, I think. And t- we tend to think of those sorts of extravagances and uh, uh, misuse of donor funds, as you've already ide- already identified them, Brady. We tend to think of those in terms of the large multinational, the global charitable organizations that really do require some degree of infrastructure mm-hmm. just to exist as a global organization. So if there's going to be an abuse of funds, we would typically look to one of those multinational organizations. And yet we discovered, and you and uh, Lou were, were pretty quick to identify it. And we discovered one of those organizations uh, right here in our own backyard in Toronto, as a matter of fact, the We Charity really yeah. has tainted uh, the uh, the good intentions of a lot of Canadians. It really has adversely affected uh, the willingness of some Canadians to contribute to charity. It's been a big negative uh, in yeah. the, in the ch- for the charity sector in the past year, hasn't it? And I, I wouldn't say it's a negative because, Sterling, there's been, and in the article, we talk about a recent survey that the Angus Reid Institute uh, did, and they found that uh, since the WE controversy, more than half of donors now say that this scandal leads them to question, you know, governance, transparency, accountability in the charity sector. And so, yes, it may be a negative, but, but at the same time, if we're able to increase that sort of public awareness around um, thinking critically, like, where is my dollar going? How am I spending this money? And how is this money being spent uh, when I donate it? Um, right. You know, that in turn could be a, a good thing. And well, I think it's it, on it the other thing. foot too, Brady, for the, for the charities, you know, they're taking it. Uh, if there's an advantage to be taken from this, uh, just flipping your message uh, to me a moment ago on the charity end, the other side of that can be okay. So uh, if you give to us, here is a complete rundown of the mm-hmm. a breakdown of every dollar you give us. And it's an opportunity for them to be more transparent than ever before and allay <laughs> some of those suspicions that have arisen, don't you think? Yeah, exactly. And it can really increase that, uh, you know, in the sector for charities to be more honest and open and, and transparent and to say, you know, we're not going to be able to capture donors' dollars anymore unless we have this, you know, uh, climate of transparency and, and we're accountable to every dollar that's donated. And as we hopefully emerge over the summer from the pandemic, we start looking at some of the lessons we've learned in the past year and a half. And one of the things that we've learned is the reliance of so many Canadians upon charitable assistance just to get through times like these. We're looking at an article this morning entitled, How to Ensure Your Charity Donations Truly Help your local community, written by two scholars at the University of Guelph, Lou Helps and our guest Brady Reed. And Brady, we're talking about the we scandal and that how uh, how much that tainted uh, the uh, the uh, good intentions of so many Canadians. It was just it was a it still uh, to this minute leaves a bad taste in our mouth, mostly because it's unresolved, and we know the government uh, fooled around to make sure it stays unresolved, and that's not helping the charitable sector at all. Plus. In terms of visibility and transparency, you point 
out in your article that Canada Revenue, in fact, have done the opposite lately, uh, basically uh, reducing visibility in terms of reporting requirements for some charities. So the combination of reduced transparency and this nasty we business still uh, the big black cloud on the horizon, Brady. Uh, So talk to us about the alternative, because the one thing that you and, and Lou have done in your article is to try to draw our attention to something called community foundations. What are they and how do they differ from what we would call typical or traditional charities? Right. So it's a great point. And it's great to, um, you know, our article wasn't meant to sort of devalue or question the ethics of, of you know, these national or, or global organizations. That's not, you know, someone else is doing that and that's not our work. And we really wanted to sort of leverage this climate around that, you know, that mysterious cloud, as you put it, to provide Canadians with an alternative and looking at um, community foundations, which are place-based uh, grant-making organizations. And when I say place-based, you know, they're they're embedded in their local service district. So, you know, they could be at different scales. You have provincial community foundations, like there is the um, community foundation of PEI, there's the community foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, but then you have more hyper-local. So, you know, it could be a town like the Greater St. John Community Foundation. Uh, it could be a county like Oxford County Community Foundation in Ontario. Um, and so they're really, um, they do that local work because they are local people. So they, uh, the staff, the board members, the volunteers, they're all part of that community, um, you know, given the name Community Foundation. And so sure. uh, it really gives that, um, that impression. Are you familiar with the Vancouver Foundation, Brady? Because uh, this is a, a very well-endowed local foundation that's been in business for a very long time. And you talked earlier about how successful charities, the really good, the good ones, have uh, are in a position to be well-endowed so that they're, they're, they're in a, a constant uh, position of ability to donate. And I know that during the last year and a half, the folks here at the Vancouver Foundation, Brady, have donated, they've dug deep and they've come up with about $20 million in terms of being able to donate and backstop various local charitable programs. And if you're not familiar with them, I would highly recommend that you you include them in your next batch of research. They're a very, very successful community foundation. Yes, absolutely. And we have colleagues, I'm working with a team of researchers across the country, actually, and we have colleagues uh, at Simon Fraser who have been doing work with that foundation uh, in particular. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's great. And, and it's, um, I should say also, you know, success isn't necessarily defined by that large endowment. I also do know community foundations that operate on less than $100,000 a year and do sure. incredible work. And I think the important, the key there is really that leveraging piece. So community foundations, um, oftentimes, and not only, but there are, you know, one of the schemes that they, that is used is sort of this micro granting um, format where they give, you know, a couple thousand dollars, $10,000 to an initiative or an activity. And then that initiative is able to then leverage those funds to get additional funds. So, you know, you can take that 5,000 and grow it into say 200,000 or 300,000. So it's really about finding those innovative pockets of, uh, of activity and people that are doing that good work to really support that in the, in the community. No kidding. Uh, Brady, one thing that I, I wanted to take a moment uh, be- and just to take advantage to pick your brain here because you're a rural studies guy. You focus a lot on uh, on, on the rural uh, environments across Canada. And so with respect to charities, uh, uh, there's a big difference in the way charities work in urban and rural Canada. Talk about those differences, if you would, for a moment, please. Absolutely. And I think it really comes down to, and you said it before, you know, as Canadians in general, we are, you know, typically regarded as generous giving people and that, you know, even more so in rural areas. And um, it becomes this philanthropic atmosphere. You know, when you're in a rural community and you know everybody in the community, if someone's house burns down, you all get together and, and, you know, there's a can at the local convenience store and you're giving money there or you're, sure. you're giving them toothbrushes or, you know, there are things that are inherently philanthropic in these communities. And so um, what we're seeing in rural communities that is a bit different than in urban communities is that translation of wealth doesn't necessarily happen the same way that it does in, in urban areas. So there are, uh, you know, inevitably there is wealth in both urban and rural areas. Um, mm-hmm. But as you said, you know, like the Vancouver Foundation, for example, ha- is able to capture you know, up to $20 million and all these big, uh, these big funds, but rural uh, organizations, while there may be wealth in the area and people are inherently philanthropic, there's a bit less, there's a bit more of a gap that uh, 
for organizations to try and capture that. And that's what some of our research is trying to look at is how can, um, you know, and, and through a research approach or evidence-based approach, how can we support organizations in really capturing those funds to, to do, as you said, you know, build those large endowments to, to be able to draw on and, and think sustainably for the future. Right. And, and are, uh, is, is the, is the rate of uh, giving and the, the uh, energy of uh, donation equal in urban and rural Canada? I would, I would think it is, but who knows? What have you found? Well, exactly. Who knows? It's hard to say exactly because the measure, uh, the measure is, is difficult, right? So because you have different populations, you have different densities, you have different uh, organizations, you know, it's easier now, especially given the, the, the shift to online giving, um, people mm-hmm. might be more apt to sort of just Google, you know, if they know of, you know, the Cancer Society or United Way or these sort of, if they know those names, they might just sort of Google that and go online and, and donate sure. versus um, being uh, more prone to look around in their local community and see where can I give this money locally. I wonder, just as a curiosity question, Brady, uh, you talk, again, you're talking about rural communities and someone's house burns down or the barn burns down and you have a barn building thing and rural communities do that. I get that. But uh, when, when we're talking about uh, donations uh, and charitable giving uh, and that same spirit of, of that people go to in, automatically in a rural environment, that's what we want. That's the idea is to try and get people in an urban environment to feel that same way. And I guess what where the disconnect comes is you can't go uh, build a barn, but what you can do in an urban environment is have a GoFundMe page. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. is there a conflict, Brady? Uh, are you beginning to recognize any conflicts between charitable giving and GoFundMe giving, or is it all essentially the same darn thing? Yeah, it's hard to say, really, because I think a lot of our work uh, looks specifically at some of those, uh, you know, charitable giving initiatives. And and as I said, you know, philanthropy, philanthropic behavior is so broad. So, it you know, it boils down to that GoFundMe page or giving to charity or volunteering your time. You know, the various, right. you know, philanthropy is, 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 is whatever you do to help others. And I think it's, um, I don't know that I would say that there are conflicts from that. Um, I think it really boils down, like I said, in a rural area, if there is no sort of online GoFundMe, that GoFundMe really would be like a can in your convenience store. It would be, sure. you know, everyone coming together that way. Mm-hmm. So you talk about best practices, almost out of time here, but I need, I need to take a moment or two before I let you go to talk about best practices. This is where your research is going in terms of the, the you talk about you, you and Lou in Guelph, Ontario, and, and working with research teams right across Canada, including folks at Simon Fraser here in Vancouver. And ultimately, the idea is to establish a, a, a best practices. What are you after, Brady? So I think as we, as you said before, you know, we're emerging, hopefully, fingers crossed, out of this COVID-19 pandemic, and we're looking now to the future and recovery strategies and innovative ways to get back to some semblance of normal. And really, um, for rural areas especially, that comes from local grassroots initiatives that, you know, it can't necessarily come from this large national organization saying, this is how we're going to do things, and we're going to impose this on you. And, and, you know, being a a rural person myself, I, I know that that doesn't always work and people don't really buy into that. And it really needs to come from, uh, come from community and come from those uh, community champions that are, are driving a lot of that change. And so community foundations really build on that. Um, and as I said, they're embedded in those local service districts. So exactly. it's, um, it's real people living in an area that they can see the challenges. And obviously the COVID-19 pandemic is a you know global phenomenon that's impacting uh, everyone across the globe, but really those, it's those local impacts that um, have to be identified and to look at recovery, um, you have to be able to empower those people in, in those local areas uh, through things like community foundations and micro-granting and providing uh, funds to these initiatives that really will start to see larger change um, from those local pockets of, of change. Indeed. It's a great article. Congratulations to you and Lou. It's well, it's well done. And uh, I hope to have the opportunity to speak to you again, Brady, because this is obviously very much an open file. How to ensure your charity donations truly help your local community. Check it out, friends. It's, it's at theconversation.com. One of the co-authors is Brady Reed, joining us this morning from the University of Guelph. Brady, great to speak to you. Thanks for taking some time this weekend to be with us. 
Thank you, Sterling. News from the Canadian Space Agency in the last couple of weeks to dive into for a few moments this morning. In partnership with NASA, a Canadian rover will land on the moon within the next five years. And as a first step, the Canadian Space Agency will select two Canadian companies to develop concepts for the rover and science instruments for the mission. With all the details this morning, joining us from Montreal is Carl Sad, the Director of Space Exploration Development with the Canadian Space Agency. Mr. Sad, Carl, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, and it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Well, it's great to have you with us, Carl. And before we dive into this lunar exploration thing, one of the other announcements that came out of the Space Agency was uh, uh, money set aside to develop the Canadarm 3 to McDonnell Detweiler uh, to uh, establish the requirements to build Canadarm 3. And the reason I, I go to that first is because we know that Canadarm 2, Carl, aboard the International Space Station, took a hit this week uh, with some space junk. What's the status this morning of the Canadarm and the ISS? Well, uh, on, regarding the Canadarm 2 and, and, and the incident that you're talking about, uh, there's been extensive work being done on this to uh, make sure that the operations of the arms have not been compromised. And um, right now it looks like the arm will be able to uh, proceed with its planned operations, but it'll be Good. something that we'll be monitoring uh, as we go. But uh, luckily, um, from what it looks like right now, the damage is, uh, is non uh, has no consequence to, uh, to the operations, which is a good thing. Well, it certainly is. It's welcome news. But I guess as, as we go forward and more and more satellites get put into, into play by more private operators, uh, and we, we're talking Musk and other companies like that, space debris and space junk has got to be more and more of a consideration for you people at the planning end of all of these missions, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. It is always a concern. It's something that is grabbing more and more attention. As, you're, as you've mentioned, there's more and more uh, spacecraft being put around Earth's orbit. So it is something that uh, is required as part of the planning to, uh, to ensure that uh, any debris or generation of debris is minimized to, uh, to the maximum. But it is something that is continually tracked to ensure that uh, like space assets are are safe, and in this case, also when we have astronauts on board the International Space Station, that is something that is always monitored to ensure safety of the uh, of the crew. Indeed, and of course, we had a chat with about a month ago, Carl, with the folks from the Maritime Launch uh, Agency that's going to set up in Canso, Nova Scotia, and, uh, and contribute to the uh, the space d junk. Uh, eventually, down the road, they plan to break ground this fall and have something launched by 2023. Is that exciting news for the Canadian Space Agency? Just the fact that there's more of that activity going on here in Canada. It's, I mean, it's great news for Canada as a whole. Uh, just to uh, to be able to um, take part in the next steps of uh, space exploration, as we can as we can see globally, there is more and more interest with uh, space exploration. I guess there's few countries are, are seeing the, uh, uh, the value of, uh, of exploration. So therefore, seeing Canadian companies being poised to be able to capitalize on these opportunities is great, not only for, for, for the Canadian Space Agency, but for Canadians as a whole, because it brings innovation. And also, it's, it can't, you know, you, it's very inspiring. So Indeed. all that has like knock-on effects. So it's, uh, overall, I think it's a good thing. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. Now, let's zoom in on this Canadian rover and the moon mission. A Canadian rover, according to your uh, press release, will land on the moon within the next five years. How's that going to happen? Where are we today with respect to being able to do that in five years? Well, uh, maybe let's give a little bit of more context to this. Back in February 2019, uh, the Canadian government uh, announced that Canada was going to participate in the next step uh, of ex space exploration, which is going back to the moon. As part of right. this uh, is uh, the, the Canadarm3 um, project that was that was announced, and as part of this as well, there was the announcement of the uh, Lunar Exploration Accelerator Program, of, of which 150 million dollars was allocated to, and the rover is now a, uh, an element uh, of that investment that is now uh, moving forward. 
And where we are at right now, um, I'm happy to say that uh, this week we've uh, released the uh, request for proposals uh, to Canadian industry to uh, bid on the uh, development of a rover. So we're looking at initially putting two contracts in place with Canadian industry to develop the concepts. And at the end of the first phase, uh, we'll evaluate the the concepts, the viability, and from there down-select to one uh, contract, one Canadian contractor, to push this development further until launch and uh, landing on on the moon uh, in in five years from now. Um, So this is a mission that we're doing in collaboration with NASA. Yes, right. The rover will have have two instruments, at least two instruments, two science instruments on it. One will be Canadian and the other one will be American. So in exchange for putting an American instrument onto a rover, NASA will will be taking us and putting us on the surface of the moon. Aha, uh-huh. there's the trade-off. Okay. So, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, if, if we had this conversation 10 years ago, we, we would know a little bit about lunar rovers having seen one once. But now, Carl, we're in a position, we know what Mars rovers looks like. It's, it's become <laughs> a thing, very much a thing. So with these requests for proposals that you're putting out, are you expecting some pretty serious competition coming back at you? Oh, uh, yes. Well, Canada, well, the Canadian Space Agency has been working with Canadian industry for uh, nearly 20 years now, developing uh, rovers uh, these, and, and pushing the technology to, to, to demonstrate Canada's capabilities and then position ourselves for uh, eventual exploration. And now this, this opportunity now is, is, is materialized with, with the funding provided for, uh, for going back to the moon. So there, there are a lot of companies that have this capability and, and we're oh, hoping for, obviously for, for competition. This is, this is good for us uh, to, to ensure that we get you know, the, the best possible technology on, onto the moon. Indeed. Uh, final question to you, Mr. Saddam. We're great to have you with us this, this morning. What's the deadline? You put out the request for proposals. How much to turnaround time have you built into that? Well, the, uh, the, 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 the Canadian industry will have approximately six weeks, so uh, I don't have exactly the date in, in, in mind. Oh, sure. Sometime in July. Okay. Sometime in July, the, the bids will be, uh, will be closed, or the bidding period will be closed, and uh, Canadian Space Agency will initiate the, the review of the, uh, of the bids in order to put a contract uh, in the early uh, fall period of, of this year. So we're really excited stuff. about this. Is, uh, yes. It is indeed. Well, it's ex- you use the right word, Carl. It's, it's exciting stuff. The, the new s- space launch in Canso, there's, there's a buzz being generated in Canada right now, and it's, it's nice to be a part of it. And I'm sure from your position there as the Director of Space Exploration Development with the Canadian Space Agency, just watching the buzz go right across the country has got to be a very energizing thing for you and all the gang at, at the Space Agency as well, just feeling the country come around behind you. Oh, for sure. It's giving us definitely the, the momentum that we want and helping us sustain that momentum that we need. To well, we appreciate your time, Carl, this morning. Thanks very much for, uh, for making yourself available to us. And we'll talk again. This is exciting stuff, and we do appreciate your input. Great. Thank you very much. It was nice uh, speaking to you this morning. There's Carl Saad, the Director of Space Exploration Development, joining us from Montreal and the Canadian Space Agency. Quoting here from the Seattle Times this morning, a virus is being transmitted between net pen salmon farms and wild juvenile Chinook salmon in British Columbia waters, according to new findings published in Science Advances. Uh, Here to talk more about it, uh, joining us from the Living Oceans Society is Executive Director Karen Riston. Karen, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning. Thanks. It's good to have you with us today. We had uh, Gideon Mordecai from UBC on with us a couple of weeks ago talking about the research that he's done. It's interesting that we're picking the story up this morning from not a Canadian source. This is from the Seattle Times. So uh, is it safe to say that the virus that is affecting BC wild salmon is making its way down Puget Sound? Oh, there's no doubt about that. The Chinook salmon... uh along the entire coast, spend time in the western portion of Vancouver Island where they come in contact with salmon farms. So there's a very good chance that American Chinook are being affected the same as ours. And uh, clearly then the, uh, the concerns that are being expressed by Canadians would be shared by American organizations that similar to Living Oceans, correct? That's true. That's, so, that's exactly the case. 
So, Carrot, if you could, please, because not everyone listening to us this morning was around when Gideon Mordecai joined us a couple of weeks ago. Could you give us the 30-second elevators version, if you would, please, of what this virus is and what it's doing? Okay. The virus is called PRV, Pythium-Ortho-Rio-Virus. And what it does to the Chinook is essentially gets into their red blood cells and explodes them. And then that overloads their kidneys and livers, and they turn yellow and eventually die. Um, that's what happens to the Chinook that are farmed here in BC. The wild Chinook, uh, the paper hasn't yet uh, traced the development of disease in the fish, but it has traced the presence of the virus in the wild fish. And what's really new about the paper, um, for the first time, they've confirmed that this virus came to Canada and the west coast of, of the United States from salmon farms. Yes, and uh, and there's a Norwegian connection to all of this, and I'm not talking about the ownership of certain salmon farming operations in British Columbia, because we know that exists, but there's also a, a Norwegian connection to this virus, is there not? There is, yes. The, uh, the genomic uh, sequence of the virus, virus here in BC has been traced right back to salmon farms in Norway, we believe that it came in with the eggs that were being imported in the early years of the development of the industry here on the coast. So it's it's diverged a little bit from the Norwegian strain, but it's there. So this is this is further confirmation, and I should also let our listeners know that we're going to have Alexandra Morton with us next weekend to talk more about this. So, uh, Kristen, we're really on this uh, subject and have been for quite some time. Uh, this is uh, welcome news, I suppose, to those who are not fond of the aquaculture industry. However, flip the coin, and uh, based on this new evidence, what are you hearing from the aquaculture industry? Well, they've been denying that PRV came in with their salmon farm eggs for quite some time. They point to a, a single sample that was apparently isolated uh, shortly before the salmon farms uh, got going here on the coast back in 1977, but that's been completely discredited now. The uh, the um, sample was never submitted for a, a peer-reviewed publication, and they think it's just a contaminated sample. And as far as DFO, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, very much involved on local aquaculture matters, uh, what with uh, the uh, the injunctions being granted off the Discovery Islands and up in that group, uh, what is the government reacting uh, in any official way uh, to these findings from uh, Dr. Mordecai? No, we've heard very little from the government in any official capacity, but uh, I understand that the decision in the Discovery Islands to close the farms there uh, <clears throat> continues to stand. There has been no uh, re-entry of fish into any of those farms that were closed down. So, so far, it's uh, the government is just holding the line. Is there any remedy, Karen, short of uh, moving the fish farms from the open ocean pen system that we have now? The only other option that seems available is land-based fish farms, presumably close to salt water for uh, uh, for obvious reasons, but nonetheless, the entire operation being out of the ocean open, the, uh, ocean, uh, the open ocean, excuse me. Uh, <laughs> that's a really hideously expensive alternative. Is there any middle ground between either or? No, no, there really isn't. And, and you know, <clears throat> the land-based solution isn't really hideously expensive if you step back and take a look at what it's costing the farmers in terms of the the death of their own stock, uh, the treatment of the stock for parasites, bacteria, viruses. This, the costs for this have been creeping up and up and up over the years. And now uh, land-based salmon farming is looking like a much, much better alternative. They can raise more of the fish to maturity and without the use of drugs and chemicals. And it would still provide the same measure or degree of employment for local people in all of the areas where these activities are already going on because it is an industry and it does employ quite a few people and it is worth several billion dollars. Yeah, it, it's true. Uh, in fact, the land-based operation can employ slightly more people than uh, the net pen operations would. And, and they're better paid jobs. They're highly technical and um, much safer. They're on land. They're in communities. Do we have examples around the world where ag aquaculture has moved from ocean open pen farming to land-based alternatives? There's a bit of movement happening in Norway now, but what's, 
What's happening more than movement from net pens to land is land-based farms being built in new places that have never had salmon farming before. Oh. So one, one good example would be in Florida. Um, there's a, an outfit there called Atlantic Sapphire that is currently farming 10,000 metric tons but has plans to scale that plant up to 200 and some uh, metric ton, thousand metric tons. Uh-huh. Uh, and that, that will serve the entire uh, eastern seaboard of the United States and, and into the interior as well when it's, when it's fully built out. So we see some, I don't know, there are over 75 projects worldwide just like that that are being built close to trade centers, but not necessarily where there's been salmon farming before. This one mm-hmm. is Dubai, for heaven's sake. Right. Uh, quick question, a quick final question to you, and we're grateful for your time this morning, Karen. Should the government be involved in any way in the transition from net uh, pens to land-based fish farms? Oh, Subsidies, yes. going- uh, some kind of encouragement tax-wise, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah they're going to have to um, become involved, either trying to attract the capital by providing tax incentives, as you say, mm-hmm. Um, but also trying to disincent the farmers from continuing to pollute the ocean by charging a reasonable resource rent for the for the uh, salmon farm tenures. So it's either you know close them all down by ministerial order, as we've done in the Discovery Islands, or provide incentives for them to to start making the change. We've made it far too easy to pollute the ocean. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. Livingoceans.org is the website. Karen Riston is the executive director of the Living Ocean Society and joining us uh, from Vancouver this morning. Karen, good to talk to you. Thank you for this. We appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Joined on the line by Rachel Harder. Ms. Harder is the member of parliament for the Conservatives for Lethbridge, Alberta, and is also the shadow minister for digital government. Ms. Harder, Rachel, good morning. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Good to be with you. Well, it's great to have you with us. I know you were on CKNW yesterday talking to Jill Bennett, but I, I'm, I'm glad that you're back with us today because you're talking to an entirely different <laughs> crowd, Rachel, and it's about Bill C-10. And, you know, the, I need to tell you one thing. On this program, just two or three weeks ago, we had the former vice chair of the CRTC, Peter Menzies, was on with us talking about this Bill C-10. And Peter, as the vice chair of the CRTC, reminded us, all of us, that the government has indeed asked the CRTC to police the internet on several previous occasions and on each occasion when the government approached the CRTC to see if they wanted to be the internet police the CRTC said resoundingly no not no thanks they said no several times and yet here they are again being placed in the role of becoming the internet police I I I bet you they're real happy about that Well, I think Peter's hitting the nail on the head, you know. Um, not only has the CRTC been asked to be the Internet police in the past, and now, of course, again, but also, you know, the CRTC was approached to do a study as to whether or not the Internet even needed to be regulated. Right. And every single study has come back negative. So this, this legislation is just absolute garbage. Well, you know, Rachel, here's here's the deal. Uh, your, your former boss, uh, Stephen Harper, mm-hmm. former Prime Minister of Canada, is legendary for being a control freak. And he was. Good guy. I knew him. But uh, what we don't understand, I think, about Justin Trudeau is that if there is to be a control freak for this decade, he's the guy, even more so than Harper. I'll talk about a one-man band. So what's behind Bill C-10, mm-hmm. really, in terms of the government wanting control? Well, I mean, I I think CRTC is exactly that. It is largely about control. It's about the government determining, you know, algorithms which are going to direct online traffic. It's going to bump content up or down in the queue, make it less or more visible. And it's all going to be based on what the government wants you to see rather than what your preferences are. Well, that's and it also in terms of what you post, that's the far, the part that I think a lot of people are finding disturbing, given the participation level right. of Canadians and all of those platforms. My gosh, talk about posters. Canadians are nuts on the on the Internet. We're the most active countries in the world. So we put a lot of stuff out there. Now that's going to be subject to monitoring. For sure. And that's just it. And that, you know, I think with this legislation, you have to consider both the viewer and the person who's 
who's posting the content. So, you know, you, me, your uncle, we're posting videos or we're posting, you know, maybe music or we're posting, you know, something written and we're putting it out there for the world to see. We're sharing it with our friends, family, etc. Um, and, you know, we're doing so because the Internet has become the new form of public square. It's where an exchange sure. of ideas takes place. It's where sometimes robust debate takes place. It's where creativity is expressed. I mean, it's just this phenomenal platform. It's amazing. So for the government to step in and start regulating, you know, what can take place within that sphere is just absolutely atrocious. It's a sad day for democracy. Well, you you went so far as to say, or at least quoted in the National Post, Rachel, as saying that this is somehow or another a violation of our fundamental charter rights. In what way? Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, under our charter, Section 2B, we have a guaranteed right to freely express ourselves. And legal experts have said that that means both the right to express yourself, in other words, put your idea out there to have a voice, but also your right to be heard. This legislation actually attacks both. So it attacks or or censors what you can say or what you can post online, how you express yourself. And it also censors what an audience or others that would be viewing your content can or cannot see. And so it is a direct violation of the Charter. Now, let's talk a little bit about the maneuvering that went on yesterday in the Commons, because you had proposed, the Conservatives (laughs) had proposed an amendment to Bill C-10, which would see the clause that excluded uh, social media returned to continue Mm -hmm. excluding social media. The Liberals removed that, and they have no, and your amendment was voted down, and then they went one further step. What else did they do yesterday? Yeah, so they not only they not only voted down my amendment uh, or my you know my colleague and I we put forward this amendment that would have brought back protection for people's posts. So they voted that down, and then they went so far as to actually move what's called time allocation yesterday, which means they want to shut down debate and force this legislation through. So instead of being able to discuss it in a robust manner and actually evaluate it appropriately. Um, instead, this government wants to just push it through. So they're giving us a maximum of five hours to finish this bill. And we're talking yeah. about, you know, we're talking several hundred pages of information that has to be sifted through. So right. to expect us to do that is absolutely ludicrous. So the idea being, though, that they don't want to get it done. And uh, now we've got an election coming up, presumably sometime before the end of the calendar year. Do you think Bill C-10 is going to be any kind of election issue? Uh, do, Do you think it should be? And do you think the government wants it to be? I think the government wants to ram this through as soon as they possibly can, but ultimately it has to go to the Senate, and I don't think the Senate is going to be willing to sit over the summer to review it. So, you know, if we were to go into a fall election, yes, I believe that there's a good chance that this could become a part of, uh, you know, a a significant election issue for sure. Okay, and and, uh, in terms of campaigning, vote for us and we'll fix the Internet? (laughs) I, I can hear something like that already formulating. Well, Sterling, there's nothing to fix. There's nothing to fix. Peter Menzies has called this bill a solution in search of a problem. There's nothing to fix. The Internet works the way it is. In fact, we thrive on the Internet because it is an open platform where the exchange of ideas can take place. It needs to stay that way. For the government to step in and dictate what you can or cannot see and to what extent, it's just wrong. Look, my final point here. We are the very first democratic country, the only democratic country, to use its Broadcasting Act to censor the content that people post online. It is likening us to countries like North Korea, communist China, Russia, Turkey, etc. We do not want to go down this road. This is not who we are. And it's, uh, well, it's certainly about who the government is and in terms of uh, a group control uh, this is certainly very strong evidence of where these people are don't you think it's sad it's so so sad i mean in in canada we pride ourselves in being a democratic country we pride ourselves in enjoying freedom i mean true north strong and free <laughs> that's who we are right and so it's so sad that we have a prime minister and a government right now that is taking us in an entirely different direction it's extremely dictatorial And we should all be very concerned for our rights and freedoms.
Indeed. Rachel, thanks very much for uh, doing this on the weekend. We appreciate your returning to the airwaves of CKNW for our weekend audience, because uh, this is important stuff and ought not to be missed by anyone. So thanks very much for taking a few moments again today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Sterling. And indeed, there's Rachel Harder, MP for Lethbridge, Alberta. She is also the shadow minister for digital government. And our government in the area of digital activity wants lots and lots of control. Doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? Here's a quote from the folks up there at the Sea to Sky Gondola. Quote, needless to say, the past eight months have been extremely challenging for everyone. Squamish, thanks for always sharing the love. The notes of support, food deliveries, and kind words have all been immensely appreciated. We can't wait to welcome you back to enjoy our collective backyard. This a release from the, pe- the people at the Sea to Sky Gondola a few days ago, thanking the folks in Squamish and area, and by way of letting the rest of us know, the Sea to Sky Gondola will reopen next Friday, June 11th. Here with all the details is Kirby Brown, the general manager of the Sea to Sky Gondola. Kirby, good morning. Good to talk to you good. again and welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Good morning, Sterling. Oh, it's great to have you back, Kirby, and great to have the Sea to Sky Gondola back. I've been up it a few times. I love the attraction. It's been, what, eight months now since, uh, since it was operational, correct? That's, that's right. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think over the past two years, we've had... Uh, uh, gosh, six months in operation between yeah. you know, the, the two acts of sabotage and a pandemic in the middle there. So we are very eager to start welcoming, you know, actual human beings back and, and seeing friendly faces and bumping elbows. So it's a, it's a great time for us. Well, you know, talk about a hard time. You talk, you just threw in the pandemic there is almost an, oh, oh yeah, and the pandemic at, talking about the two acts of sabotage. But, I mean, yeah. uh, what, a, what a collective uh, load you've had to carry since opening this attraction just a few years ago, Kirby. Yeah, well, our seventh anniversary slid by us here in May, um, and we had sort of five pretty glorious years, you know, um, <clears throat> the public response was absolutely fantastic. The you bet. local response to our programming was wonderful. And the, the past couple of years have obviously been rough, but, you know, it, it, context is important. The past year in particular for this whole planet, you know, our local community has been really challenging. So, you know, we made it through. Uh, nobody got hurt. when I had a millwright break a pinky on the first time uh, through something that was incredibly dangerous uh, and mm-hmm. had the potential to be life-threatening. Uh, so we're really proud of that first and foremost. And then, Really hard. And, you know, I, I said that in a previous interview here in Squamish, we had a, a local couple pass away from COVID within a few hours of each other. Wonderful people, Meryl and Gail Ross. And they were there in the trucking community and the trucking community showed up and there was like 90 trucks honking horns last Saturday driving mm-hmm. down the highway into the community. Yep. Uh, and hundreds of people out just, you know, watching uh, Meryl's truck go by with a wreath on the side and a low bed. And, uh, and, and that's the kind of community Squamish is, you know, we just get through hard times, but we do it with our heart on our sleeve and, uh, and with our eyes on the future. So we just want to honor that. So it's, uh, it's time to pick ourselves up and get moving ahead and, and remember that a lot of people have had a tough time and, and we're just about a place where you can come and, and connect with the great outdoors and mm-hmm. try and overcomplicate it. It's just a beautiful place to be here in the, the unceded traditional territory of the Squamish people. So. Yeah, Kirby, in, in a typical year when there aren't any issues, and boy, that sounds kind of rare, but let's assume we had one. What sort right. of contribution, <laughs> what, what sort of contribution does the gondola and the attraction make to the local economy? I would imagine it's significant. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're talking about a significant seven figures number in terms of, uh, you know, the, the locals we employ, that we mm-hmm. source as much as possible directly locally. Um, you know, whether it's food and beverage or retail shop, we try and represent Squamish as best we possibly can. Uh, and then our, our community contribution side, we're pretty quiet about that. But I think if you reached out, you'd, you'd find it rare to find a, a not-for-profit or a community organization that we haven't supported full-throatedly, uh, you know, we're both from our, our hip pocket and also with our hearts. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, what we're, we're about Squamish. We, our ambition is always to have Squamish be proud of us and to be known as Squamish's gondola. Um, so we, we, it's not just a give back, like it's just, we're in the fabric of the community. That's what we do this sure. is where we live and this is what we love. So, um, yeah, so I, I think it, we've been, we've been missed, um, as much as we've missed operating, you know, people have missed us. Obviously we are a draw when 
times are normal for people. And all those weddings, Kirby, all those weddings and other gatherings that have been booked and planned. And oh my gosh, the shelving and reshuffling the deck that's taken place. It's absolutely incredible. Now, I know you can't talk about this too much, but what can you tell us uh, about the enhanced security that is clearly a part of the reopening? Robot dogs with laser beam eyes, Sterling. No, I'm totally <laughs> joking about that. But, you know, it, it is, uh, we're, we're using the, the most advanced technology uh, backed up by an incredibly professional team um, that, we've, uh, that uh, we've recruited and, and used uh, all kinds of experts, um, a few very notable ones that, um, you know, have the kind of pedigree that uh, I, I find absolutely fascinating and extraordinary. Mm. But really, putting in place an, an, an architecture that, that is on purpose uh, multi-layered complex, um, but really suffices to make sure that, you know, we're um, very well observed and protected. So it's not like I've been saying, it's not like anything is foolproof, you know, um, look around the world and you'll find, you know, heavily fortified installations that still suffer at the hands of uh, evildoers, but mm-hmm. it is extraordinary. It's meant to be, completely comprehensive and uh and it really is changing uh day by day and night by night you know so uh um we're, we're very confident that the experience is is completely safe as it always has been sure. um and that should somebody want to try again they would have great difficulty so i mean and again we're not taunting anybody you know um we've tried to carry ourselves throughout this with an air of vulnerability and curiosity like how can we be better and as a company and as people within the company so that we can always improve um, when the owners tasked us with running see the sky gondola they're all local folks sure they want to build so, they want to build a legacy and we're trying to honor that right kirby when the uh, gondola reopens this coming friday uh what security or I'm, I'm sorry what covid safety protocols should we expect to observe well during our run of being open during covid we really nailed that and we've modified and improved it ever since but you know, from from the moment you arrive in the parking lot, only the people that you travel with in your in your bubble uh, will be put in the gondola together. So the nice thing about our operations, we have lots of brand new cabins, and you sure. each uh, each family or, or group that you're traveling with gets one of those by yourself. And then the summit, you know, the restaurant we're open according to the COVID protocol, so we do have limited indoor seating. Lots of huge decks, though, so lots of outside seating. We have a beautiful backyard with uh, food service out there, lots of picnic tables spread out. And mm-hmm. then, of course, the trails are about as COVID safe as you can get. Um, there will be, you know, places of con- uh, potential congestion, like the Chief Overview platform, this beautiful look down at the, the Stuamish Chief. Uh, that tends to get a bit busy, so we have oh, yeah. directional signage locations like oh, that's that. Good. But yeah, yeah, but now, otherwise, in terms we're, we're, of. We're, you know, in terms of booking uh, and making reservations and all of that kind of thing, I'm assuming, as is the case with a lot of uh, COVID protocols, there's no walk up and, and, and buy your tickets. You have to all do all of this in advance online, or has that changed? Well, you actually can buy tickets at the ticket window, but we certainly are strongly encouraging and discounting tickets for people who purchase online just to make sure that we don't have lineups. The nice thing about Sea Sky Gala is we also have lots of outside lineup space that we can we can uh, space people out if they're in queues um, and keep it perfectly safe and on side with COVID. But we strongly encourage people to go to the website and and purchase your ticket, have a look at what's going on that day. All right. Well, Kirby, thanks very much for doing this this morning. It's great to talk to you again. It's been quite a while. And more importantly, it's going to be fantastic to have the Sea to Sky gondola back in operation. So thumbs up and uh, we wish you considerable success. Thanks for this morning. Greatly appreciate it, Sterling. Thank you. There's Kirby Brown, the general manager of the Sea to Sky Gondola, reopening next Friday, June 11th. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.